I have so enjoyed being here. I, I love ladies' meetings. You know, it's like the one day that you get to put all of your ideas and your, <laughs> you know, everything into to one event, and it's just really wonderful. Women are detailed-oriented anyway, and I was just looking at those little cupcakes we had for lunch. Wasn't that so special? It was really neat, all, just down to every detail. It was so special, and I'm, I've, it's been an honor for me to be here. Uh, if you had told me when I was a kid growing up that I, well, first of all, that I would live in New York, I would have laughed at you because I was born in southeastern Alabama and then lived in Florida for uh, many years, and I never dreamed that I um, would live in the north and the fact that I've been in Michigan so many times. I love Michigan. I really do. But I am a Crimson Tide fan. So, I'm, so you know, I feel the same way. <laughs> Are there any Ohio State fans in here? Let's all bow our heads, ask for God's forgiveness. <laughs> the altar is open. <laughs> How many uh, Michigan fans are here? That last game, man, my heart went out to you. Did I just call you man? I'm sorry. (laughs) That's my two older brothers talking. Um, But boy, I really felt for you. That was a terrible play, couple of plays, couple of bad calls. I was watching that game. I I feel for you. All right, does everyone have a handout almost? I'm going to... Go ahead and get started. My favorite sport, when you, when you grow up with two older brothers, how many of you have older brothers? Okay, how many of you have older brothers that are very athletic and played every sport imaginable? <laughs> well, that was my brothers. Every sport but soccer and hockey. Growing up in the South, we, I didn't even know what hockey was. Um, but we, my brothers played lots of sports, and we'd go to every game, and, you know, a big athletic family. I remember when I was a kid, my brothers were so proud of me because I could name every NFL team and their quarterbacks. Yeah, at the time there were 28 teams, and I could name all the quarterbacks. And uh, does everybody have a handout now? Who's still missing one? Oh, this whole this section back over in here. Ah. So um, big sports family, but my favorite sport to watch or play has always been tennis. I love tennis. I play tennis to this day. And my kids like to play, so that's nice. So, of course, it was play or else. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. (laughs) But my husband hated it. So once my kids got big enough, I taught them how to play. So now we can play. And a couple years ago, my son finally got to the place where he could beat me. Are you one of those mothers that lets your son win? Oh, praise the Lord. I am, I am in a rational part of the world. I did not let my son win. I made him beat me. And uh, now he can every time, handily, I might add. <laughs> but I love to play tennis. I always have. And for my 40th birthday, can I remove this? Is that going to change the global template of the world? Have you ever done that on your, on your computer? It says change the global template. I've done that a few times. I'm the only one that's done that. I have such power. (laughs) Anyway, um, so growing up, tennis was my favorite uh, sport to watch or to play. My brothers and I used to go play at least three nights a week. And, uh, you know, I love tennis because you only need one other person. And if you're really desperate, you just need a wall. 
So it's fun. And so we would, we would go play tennis. And uh, if you had told me when I was a kid, though, that I would live one hour away from the U.S. Open, I would have just... Does anybody know what the U.S. Open is? Any tennis fans in here? Like real solid tennis fans. Okay. For a uh, female, who's your favorite player? You don't, you don't have a female? All right. Let's go with the males. Who's your male favorite? Who is it? You don't know right now? Who's saying Federer? Okay. He's all right. <sighs> Who, um, any Nadal fans? Come on, guys. Nadal? No? Okay. Anyway, Nadal's my guy. Um, but I, when I turned 40, just last year, <laughs> I'm just kidding. When I turned 40, <laughs> my husband took me for the first time to the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament in Flushing Meadows, Queens. And it was, you're not impressed. <laughs> you're like, we really don't care. <laughs> But in the world, there are four turn- major tennis tournaments. That they're, they're called Grand Slam tournaments. Have you ever heard that term before? Okay. The U.S. Open is one of the Grand Slam tournaments. Okay? There's one in Paris. There's one in London, which is Wimbledon. Yes. And someday I'll get there. And then, in fact, I have a friend who went... See, this is why... I just keep going off on these rabbit trails because my mind is a bowl of spaghetti. I always tell my husband, your brain's a waffle, mine's spaghetti. Live with it. So, okay, so get, get back to this noodle. So, um, anyway, I have a friend who went to, uh, went to London recently, and they took a tour of the championships at Wimbledon. They took a tour of the grounds, and, of course, she knows how much I'm dying to go there, so... She actually made it out onto one of the courts and tried to pick some grass for me. Isn't that so sweet? <laughs> she almost went to jail. That's no joke. They, it's like a SWAT team. They came out and were like, what are you doing? You know, and she threw the grass down. I was like, you, what, you picked it and you couldn't bring it home to me? Gracious. Anyway, she did pick me up a keychain, which was very nice. Um, but so there's Wimbledon in London, and then there's one in Australia, the Australian Open. And so, um, but the one here in America is one hour from me. Isn't that awesome? So anyway, my husband took me the first time when I was 40, and we spent the whole day there, and it was just so amazing. And we actually went on my birthday, which was really cool. And um, so since then, I told him, I said, well, now you spoiled me. Now I have to go every year. (laughs) Oh, well. (laughs) But here's what I do all year long. I save my change, and I've recently, two years ago, I started adding, um, do you do um, recycling here with your water bottles and things? Okay, we do too. So instead of cashing out that money and like taking off my grocery bill or whatever, I save those slips, and once a month, I cash those in. So I save all that money. Last year, between my change and my recycling slips, I saved $433. And so every year, just with my change, I take our family to an evening match at the U.S. Open, which is pretty cool. And um, this is so neat. I, I, such a blessing I got today. Um, Paula, where are you? Her daughter and another girl have been saving their change for me. And today, I just can't, I can't even get over this. She gave, they cashed it in, and it came to $50. Is that the sweetest thing? Oh, my goodness. Really sweet. So, I mean, I guess I've been a little obnoxious about how much I like going. Anyway, (laughs) 
I am grateful. But I think more people would watch tennis or play tennis if they understood the scoring. Am I right about that? If some of you that aren't a big fan, is it because maybe you don't understand the scoring? No, you just don't like it in general. She just like, no, I don't watch it because it's boring. It's not as boring as golf. Gracious. Anyway, <laughs> wow, I've started an uprising. <laughs> golf is better. So the scoring in a game of tennis, one game goes like this, okay? Everybody know what you start at? Love. Zero. Psh. It's love or zero. <laughs> it just, it means everybody's even. So you start at love, okay? If, if you're going to play a game where one person wins all the points, the scoring would go like this. 15, 30, 40, you win. Okay, so basically if you think about it in four points, that's what a game of tennis is. Where it gets complicated is if both people score a point, you have 15, then you have 30, then you have 40, and then the very next point that somebody would score would be called what? No. Their advantage. <laughs> you got to win by two. So their advantage, okay, if, if the next person wins the point, so the pers- one person just, this is really popping. Am I all right? It's not annoying, is it? One person wins that point. It goes to their advantage. The next person wins the point. What is that? Deuce, okay? Awesome. You guys are so, you're so good. So you're at deuce, okay? Then the next person scores a point, and then what is the score back to? Advantage. And then if they score another point, they win, okay? It's really not as complicated as it looks. The point, if you just understand you have to win by two, or if you keep the other person at nothing, you have to win four points. So it's really not a super big deal. But I love tennis because uh, it's such, a, such an amazing sport, and uh, this is more of a... Of a um, racquetball racket, but it's going to work for our illustration today. Um, I love to, uh, to teach my kids all the shots. I like the slice. I like the backhand. I like the slam. That's the best one. And uh, my son-in-law, you know, he always claimed before he got to know us that tennis was for sissies. And I was like, oh, we'll see about that. And so, <laughs> so we taught him to play, and we had played one set which is a total of six games if, if you win six straight games or if you get to six first, winning by two. That's one set. When we finished the set, of course I won, but when we finished the set, he said to me, that's it? And I was like, no, no. <laughs> For the men, there would be at least two more of those. It's best of five. For the women, it's best of three. And he was like, maybe I changed my mind. <laughs> maybe it's not for sissies. <laughs> And, you know, some matches go longer than three hours. Some go longer than four hours. The longest match I ever watched was, um, boy, I think it was 2014 at the Australian Open. It went over six hours. It was just grueling. The men's final went for six hours. But the greatest match of all time, in my opinion, is the 2008 men's Wimbledon final. And I'm serious. I know even if you're not a tennis fan, you would love to watch the last few minutes of that match. Roger Federer, number one in the world, rarely lost, rarely even broke a sweat. I don't know how that man does it. But he was number one and, uh, and doing well. If he won Wimbledon, he retained the title. 
the guy who was playing him was my guy, Rafael Nadal, okay? And Rafael was just coming up. But if he won, he had, had, he had scored enough points that if he won, he was going to take over the number one ranking and, of course, win Wimbledon, which he had been trying to do. And he was just 18 years old at this, uh, in 2008. And so the final was one of the most epic, the most epic, in my opinion, because of this one fact. There were so many games that were played all the way to someone's advantage and then back to deuce. And then it'd be Federer's advantage, back to deuce. Rafa's advantage, back to deuce. It was such a nail-biter. And all the games were so long and so intense. And uh, just an epic, epic match. And the very next to last point of the match puts Rafa at his advantage. If he wins the next point, he's number one in the world. He wins Wimbledon. His life changes drastically. And he's filthy rich, (laughs) to add to that. And so he's serving for the match, and he wins. And if you get a chance to watch the video, he just collapses um, on, on the grass because he's tired, but also that pressure, you know, the pressure's just being lifted off. He got to his advantage, and then he won. Just an amazing, amazing feat. You have there on your handout a Bible verse, the one that, I'm sorry, the one that has the racket on it that says, bitter party of one. And that verse is 2 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. Will you read it out loud with me? Ready? To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. One day I was reading that verse, and all of a sudden, it was like a light bulb came on, and a whole new light was shed on this verse for me, and that word, advantage. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for this day. And Lord, I pray that as we uh, end for the day, and just have a few moments left together. I pray that you'll help us to, to uh, really examine our hearts. If there's anything that's keeping us from, having, from you having the victory in our hearts and lives, I pray that we'd open that up to you and get rid of it so that you can work in our lives. And we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. An unwillingness to forgive makes the score advantage Satan. Forgiving makes the score advantage you. The only flesh and blood we are to fight is our own. When you have forgiven the other person and shown him or her mercy, you have gotten the upper hand not over that person, but over Satan's ability to have an open door in your life. The lack of forgiveness takes a hard-fought, even game, and give Satan the upper hand in your life. The act of forgiveness takes a hard-fought, even game and turns the tide in your favor. We've all known people who have struggled to forgive, and maybe you are like me, and you have fought that battle for yourself. Struggled to forgive someone who hurt you deeply. When you hang on to that, 
Satan has such an advantage and he's so close to putting a shot down the line or lobbing the next weapon over your head. And it's only a matter of time before he wins. We don't want him to win in our lives. I don't want him to win in the lives of my children. And if I don't want that, I have to take steps to make sure that I have the advantage, that I'm making the shots. And the only way to do that is to realize that God needs to be able to make them through me. And he can only work through a heart that's not hanging on to anger and bitterness and wrath and malice. When our oldest daughter went to college several years ago, we had dropped her off, and uh, we drove all the way through northwest Indiana and drove all the way through Ohio, and we were going to stop for dinner at Cracker Barrel, and it had been several hours before my husband or I had even been able to speak. (laughs) We were so sad. (laughs) Kids, don't go to college. (laughs) Just, you know, just be kind to your parents. But we finally, you know, we walked into Cracker Barrel and we were, you know, our eyes were bloodshot and we were a mess. And we had to look at the, the greeter there and tell her, um, Vasek, party of four. And, you know, I'm sure we'd had to do that before, but it wasn't permanent. And now she wasn't with us anymore. She was living in another address And now we were four instead of Vasek party of five, like it had always been since our baby girl was born. And I got to thinking, you know, how many times in my life has it been bitter party of one? When you have bitterness in your heart, you're alone. You may think you have the world by the tail, but you're, you're driving that car alone. You're eating at that table alone. You're going through life alone. And it hurts you, and it damages you, and it gives Satan an advantage in your life. I want to talk to you for just a little while today about forgiveness and how to get rid of the bitterness in your life. You have the handout there that says bitter, party of one. I want to talk about some lessons on forgiveness. If I had one talk that I could give, if, if I was given the choice to speak to every single Christian lady, this is the talk I would give. I have seen a, four out of nine of my pastors, and I had nine pastors when I was a child. Four out of nine of those men, this is why I had nine pastors, Four out of nine of those men were immoral. I've been, I mean, if you could say, you know, I've been hurt in church, (laughs) just a little. But I've come to understand God is bigger than all of that. But what I have seen in my life more than do more damage than adultery or gossip, which does some damage, what I've seen do more damage is bitter people. People struggling with bitterness. And you might say today, I don't have any of that. I hope you don't. I hope you're right. But if there is any corner of your heart that's harboring that, understand you're alone. It's a party of one. 
Some lessons on forgiveness. Number one, forgiving doesn't give you amnesia. Forgiving gives you a path to a better life. I know all too, feeling, all too well the feelings of I'll never forget what they did to me. I know that feeling. I'll never forget it. Or I may forgive it, but I'll never be able to forget it. And we may forgive an offense, but it's preposterous to say that forgetting about that offense is something that will naturally follow. I cannot forget that my dad left our family. If, you've had, if you were abused in your life, you cannot forget that abuse. There are kids who are growing up in the most egregious of circumstances, and it's here every day. How are they going to forget about that? We are putting a supernatural burden on ourselves sometimes. Only God can forgive and forget. Number two, if you're waiting to forgive until you're able to forget, you will never forgive. If you are requiring of yourself to forget your hurt before you forgive, then you are putting a supernatural burden on yourself. Leave it to the Lord. Only God can forgive and forget. Um, As I told you earlier today, my dad came up uh, once when I was 30, and our baby girl was just about three months old. And I remember that I walked around in our backyard with him, and it was the day he was leaving. And um, there there has never been an apology, and my, my parents have never spoken to each other in all these years, which has been a blessing in some ways. But we were walking around in our backyard, and I remember that I said to my dad, I just want you to know, Daddy, that we didn't sit around and, and talk about you. And Mom didn't run you in the ground. And we didn't, we didn't just sit around and, and hate you. We just went on. And I thought I was opening a door for him to say, you know, I'm really sorry about all this. It was a tender moment for me. But my dad said, thank you, and walked inside. And I was crushed. And I said to my husband, he's never coming back here. I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't do it. Uh, when I was 19, I sang in a church on, I was traveling in a summer group for our college, and I sang in a church. This is one of the three times I saw my dad between 9 and 30, my age, 9 and 30. I was 19. And I walked into a church in Naples, Florida that we had sung in so many times when I was a kid. It was hard enough for me to be there. But I walked in, and the pastor's wife recognized me. And, um, of course, I'm grown up now, but she was such a sweet lady. The last time I, was sung, I had sung there, I believe I was eight years old, with my dad. And, um, and so now I'm 19. I look a little different, but she recognized me. And the next thing I know, I turn around, and there's my dad. I don't know how he knew I was going to be there. You know, honestly, I've never even asked him. But he was standing there, and I was just shocked. And I really thought he had come that night to apologize. Never did. So when I'm 30 and he's visiting, I tell my husband, there's no way. I'm not doing this anymore. It's too, it's too difficult. I set myself up for high expectations, and then they're just trashed. And so my husband said, okay. Well, a few times after that, my dad would call me, and we would talk a little bit. He still never apologized, but I, I was just trying to work on my own self, you know? And I, and I came to the place where I said, okay, 
it's worth it. He is my dad. And I didn't choose it, but God did. And so it's worth it for me to have somewhat of a relationship with him because I don't want to be hindered in my life and my walk. And so as best I could, I began to work on it. Well, when I was 36, my husband said, you know, your dad's doing really well. I mean, he's in church. He's trying to serve the Lord as best he can. Why don't we have him come up and sing for a meeting? I said, no. (laughs) And then my husband said those fateful words that you know when when your husband says them to you, oh, it's going to happen. He said to me, pray about it. So I did. And my dad came up, and it was June. We have a big camp meeting every year, and we were having our camp meeting. And so I had planned to sing a song that night. It's called Bless the Lord, Oh My Soul. I can't sing it without crying. But I was going to play for myself to sing it from the piano. And so I, this is my seat right over here. And uh, so I, my husband introduced it. I got up to play. And then I finished, and I went and sat down. And, and uh, all of a sudden, my dad stands up. Now, I'm not sure if I mentioned this before, but my dad is just the greatest pianist I've ever heard. He's blind, but he plays like he has ten hands. He's a genius on the piano. And uh, he said, get back up there. I want to play that for you, for you to sing again. And I said, no. (laughs) And he said, no, go, go back up there. And do you ever have those moments where you're instantly taken back till you were like six years old? And you're, you're just screaming inside with all your might, but you can't, you're six years old. So there's nothing you can do. You just go with it. Because that's what you had always done before the other person changed the circumstance. So my dad started into the intro. We ne- obviously never rehearsed it. He just had it. So I got through the song. Because he couldn't see me, the... <laughs> The introduction, you know, I, I was just standing there. I looked back at my husband. He's like, you can do it. I'm like, no, I can't. <laughs> well, I made it through. And, you know, I'm just going to be real honest with you. Everybody that was there that night kept saying, wasn't that just the most wonderful thing? Isn't he amazing? Wasn't that special? And I'm just standing there going, I hate all of you. <laughs> No, it was not special. Do you know how bad that hurt me? Do you even have a clue? And so I, I was sitting there in my seat, and I was just looking out the window, and I was saying, God, what do you expect from me? This is too much. Really? You couldn't have just eased me back in? To, I mean, really on display, and I'm supposed to act like the good Christian here? And I'm just supposed to, and I'm having this conversation with the Lord from the front row. And I said, tell me what you want from me. And God said, he has showed thee, O Amy, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. And I said, well, Lord, if it's just three things, I can do that. I may not do it perfectly, but I can do it. Number three, forgiveness says, I choose to not hold the one who hurt me responsible for my healing. Only God can help with that. I choose to not hold the one who hurt me responsible for my healing. Only God can help with that. 
I cannot forget what was done in my family any more than I can forget my own name. It's there. It's always there. My kids know that, you know, my kids started asking very young, why don't Granny Hayes and Grandpa Hayes ever visit together? Well, (laughs) and I had to tell them, my innocent kids had to tell them what happened. And you know, I did it tactfully, but I should have never had to do that. But I can't forget because it's there. And everybody has something that you're thinking about it right now. I can't forget this. But true healing comes when you can look at that other person, and and maybe not even out loud, but you can look at them and say, but I'm not going to hold you responsible for my healing. Because I don't need you for that. You can't do it anyway. Only God can help me with that. Number four, God wants us to love mercy. God wants us to love mercy. In that moment, when I was reminded after I had sung just how badly my dad hurt our family, I could have chosen to retaliate. I could have made a scene. I could have done a lot of different things. But I said, okay, in this moment, I remember that God says with the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. And I will love showing mercy in this situation. Before that, I had always loved to get mercy. But I hadn't always loved to give it. But because I was merciful to my dad that night, and probably many other times that I hadn't blown up, (laughs) but because I was merciful, that week he apologized. For the very first time, And boy, did that help. But you know, the truth is, I had really healed a lot with the help of God. And I didn't hold my dad, I didn't hang on to that. You know, oh, if only my dad would just say I'm sorry. I was beyond that. But I knew God would help me. I had been told God would help me, and then I found out for myself from what he said in this book. And he did help me. But God wanted me to show Mercy in that moment. Number five, when you choose not to forgive, you embrace bitterness. Whether you think you are or not, you embrace it. Social media, oh my goodness, I know this has been touched on a little bit, but it has given people an opportunity to be so uh, offensive before they've even had breakfast. And entire ministries and churches are being built on the bitterness of other people. Oh, they hurt you? Don't worry about going to make it right. Just come over here. Let, we need to make things right. Let's be the Christian that makes it right. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And we all know when we have those pet issues that we just can't move past. And sometimes you just need a good old-fashioned heart surgery to move beyond those things and to have the self-control to say, at the very least, I'm not going to make this public for the world to see. The handout there says 10 signs that you have bitterness in your heart. We're going to go to that one really quickly. Hebrews 12.15 says, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, 
lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. When we first started our church, we lived on the left end of a um, lady who'd actually had lived in that house. She was born in that house, and she at the time we moved there, she was 93, and her family had been given the deed to that property from the king of England, and the deed still hung in her parlor. It was a pretty neat place. But I agreed to do some light work for her so that um, we could have discounted rent because we were starting a church, and we weren't millionaires and still aren't. And so one of my jobs for her was to weed the garden. And I had never done any real weeding before, especially not up north. And a lot of the things looked different to me. And so she taught me that weeds many times disguise themselves as flowers. And they don't jump outside the garden to just all of a sudden, let's do some damage over here. They damage what's inside your garden. And they go after the other beautiful things inside your garden to do it damage. And so she said, you have to pull those out. You have to recognize what they look like and pull them out by the roots so that that one doesn't have a chance to come back anymore. And it's interesting that Hebrews refers to bitterness as the root of bitterness. Because if you don't pull it out by the root, it will come back. And you know, it's not a one-time thing. I wish I could I had time to mention all that to you. I tried, I tried throwing it on a rock and throwing it in the lake and say, okay, God, it's at the bottom of the ocean and it'll never come back. And I, I walked inside and my very, I, walked, I was in college when I did that and I walked inside and my very close friend said, look what my dad just sent me and it was a $100 bill. And I said, really, God, that's supposed to help me with my bitterness? <laughs> that makes me more bitter. Um, and, and it's a struggle, and sometimes it's a daily struggle. But ten signs. The Bible says many be defiled. It's not just you that is hurt. You hurt others too. Number one, when you're displeased that your enemy has gotten right with God. You know, truly, we don't really have enemies. We, we don't fight flesh and blood, and we know that. But it can feel like somebody is at odds with you and that they are your enemy. And David certainly referred to people as his enemy. But when you're displeased that that person has made things right with God, you have bitterness in your heart. Number two, when you're angry at God for showing mercy to your enemy. Look at Jonah. Good night. Did anybody have anything ever more miraculous happen in their ministry than Jonah? And yet when Nineveh got right, he was totally angry. Number three, when the restoration of your enemy ruins your life. You know, the Bible says we're supposed to be restoring such an one. And we're supposed to be welcoming them back to the fold. And if we're not, that's our bitter spirit. Number four, when you pull for their destruction, even after they've gotten right. Have you ever rejoiced when something bad happened to a person you felt was your enemy? That's bitterness. Number five, when you can't see that God is dealing with you. Sometimes you can become so consumed with, well, I hope they get what's coming to them, and you're getting what's coming to you, and you don't even realize it. And things are falling apart, and you, and you can't even see it. That's bitterness in your heart. Number six, when you defend your bad feelings. And as I said many times, you just don't know what he did. And maybe you've said that. You just don't know what they did to me. I don't. The Lord does. And as my husband has said to me many times, Amy, sometimes it's just going to have to be enough that God knows. 
and you can tell him about it all day, every day, but it may never be right on this earth. And sometimes that just has to be enough. That's hard, isn't it? That's like college level Christianity, but it's the truth. It keeps your heart free from bitterness. Number seven, when you completely lose sight of compassion. Number eight, when you have surrendered your principles so you can stay angry. Number nine, when you think you're sowing discord among the brethren is warranted. Look, I, I, I'm like you. I mean, sometimes I need somebody to, with skin on to talk to and all that. But what I do not get is airing dirty laundry publicly and venting on social media and talking about every single thing that's ever been wrong, done wrong to you. There's a prayer closet for that. And you may need counsel from time to time. But those are private matters. The whole world doesn't have to know how we've been hurt. And sometimes something will happen one minute and I'll see a person post about it 30 seconds later. Take some time to calm down. Pray. Ask God what you should do. The chances might be 100% that you need to call and say, I'm sorry for this misunderstanding. It might be me. It might be you. Number 10, when you capitalize on the bitterness of other people. That's what Absalom did. He just waited. You know, he just waited outside, outside the the palace there. Oh, you have a problem? Yeah, I know how that is. And he built a reputation and a following that he would listen to your anger and he would listen to your bitterness and he would care, whereas his father wouldn't. But you know who that ended up hurting? Absalom. It got him. Just amazing, the story of the potential of that young man that was completely snuffed out. All right, back to the other handout. We're going to finish the last two points. Number six on the um, bitter party of one handout. Number six, learn to separate what human beings do from what God is. This is my theme song that I (laughs) scream at the top of my lungs to teenagers whenever I get the chance. Do not judge the character of God by the character of any human being. God's character is flawless. And the character of human beings is so chinked, there's just no way we can fix it. People are going to let us down. But God, God's character, it doesn't allow him to. His character is impeccable. People are going to let you down. God is the only stable one involved in any situation. He can be trusted. Having bitterness in your heart over what a human being did to you means that you think that person is bigger than your God. doesn't matter what anybody did to me. It doesn't matter those four pastors who thought the other woman was more important than their ministry and their families. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that my parents couldn't stay married doesn't matter. God is bigger than all of that. Whatever has happened in your life, God is bigger than that too. Look, in the whole scheme of things, and I'm sure compared with some of you, I've suffered very little in my life. But it doesn't matter what's gone on in your history. God's bigger than your history. God's bigger than the person who hurt you.
Number seven, remind yourself of the reasons why getting rid of the bitterness is worth the work. We've all got family, we have friends, we have dreams, we have goals to pursue. Hanging on to bitterness destroys all of it. You don't want to be a casualty of Satan. When our first daughter, and I'll close with this, when our first uh, baby was born on May 12, 1995, I held that little girl in my arms. I am not a natural-born mother. And I knew it was going to take a lot of work for me to, to be the kind of mother that I should be for this little life that I'm holding. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with her. But I looked down in her little face and I made her three promises. I promised her that I would do my best to always love her daddy and keep our family together. I promised her that I would not be too proud to humble myself and get help if I needed it. In my marriage, in, in our home, what, me personally, I would not be too proud to do that. Because she was so important. <laughs> and number three, I promised her that I would not pass my baggage on to her. And that's been a difficult promise to keep. Because I don't always process things in the right way. When you, when you grow up and, and you've been rejected, you don't always process things the right way. And sometimes you say things you don't mean to say, and sometimes you do things, and you think, why did I do that? <laughs> but I promised her I would work on it, and I would not pass that on to her. I made the same promises to her brother Joey when he came along. I looked at my little boy. I made those same three promises. I would not pass my baggage on to them. And our baby girl, Amanda, she was so tiny, tinier than the other two. And I looked at her and I just said, I promise you, and I will do the hard work of making sure you don't grow up like that. And, and not just that, but that you don't have to deal with all the stuff that goes on in here, all the craziness and all the filtering of, of everyone's words and, and all of the things that you know you deal with when you've grown up in some certain situations. All of our kids now, our baby girl leaves in a few months to go to college. And yeah, she's my baby girl and I don't care. <laughs> and I've done my best to keep those promises. And I look at our three children. And you know what? <laughs> they don't think twice when somebody says a certain thing. They don't, they don't wonder if somebody's going to reject them ever. They don't, they don't, they have no clue what that feels like. Because I did the hard work of getting rid of the bitterness and the anger and the fear and the insecurity and I let God move in and fill in all those, spa all those empty spaces. And if you're still breathing, there's hope for you to do that too. You're never beyond hope. God wants to be the healer in your life. Don't hold anybody else to that standard. They can't do it. Don't let it depend on what another human being does. 
Let God step in and help you. Forgive. Don't hold on to the bitterness so that the score is not advantage Satan, but the score is advantage you. Do you want it to be bitter? Party of one? Come right this way. Or mercy? Party of you and God. Thank you.